So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, my dear friend, Abby Greensfelder, who's the founder and CEO of Every Woman Studios, which is a full-service media company, and that is also the brainchild of LFG. Let's fucking go. I can say that on my podcast, right? LFG is this incredible documentary film that Abby came up with. It's the story of U.S. women's soccer and their fight for success on the soccer field, but their fight for equal pay. Abby founded Every Woman Studios to create content about women in unexpected places and in so doing, amplify the impact women are having while generating real change. Abby's also the genius behind many of our favorite shows, including TLC's Say Yes to the Dress. She's also an awesome photographer. She's a mom of two extraordinarily cool daughters. And she has a really awesome husband who's also my friend. I'm really lucky to call Abby my dear friend. She was in my wedding. She knows more about me than I care to admit. Thank you so much, Abby, for coming on the show. I'm so psyched to be here. You have a great story. It's inspiring to me, inspiring to so many women. And the recent success with LFG, to me, kind of is emblematic of your journey, to use an overused word, of kind of growing into who you are and then taking that insight, self-awareness, growth, and then channeling it into storytelling about other women whose stories wouldn't be told without the art of film. So I wonder if you could just talk about that. Like, how did you come to wanting to tell stories like you do? How did you come to talk, wanting to talk about stories of women and their success and their struggles? And like, where does that come from? It kind of came out later. The seeds were there when I was in high school, even like when we were growing up, I was in early feminist, we went to an all-girls school, I did photography, I played sports. And I remember having a keen sense of frustration around being at this all-girls school and often finding that we didn't have the same opportunities yeah. as our male counterparts at St. Albans, like you, who were in advanced math. I remember this so well. Lucy, who was our class valedictorian, by the way. Well, I mean. Uh, well, you were. Yes. was also a math whiz could only take the highest level math and science at St. Albans, our boys' school. We did not offer it at the girls' school. That pissed me off. I had a real sense of wanting to right the wrongs for girls. I don't know if that came from NCS or came from being the child of a lawyer who fought to right the wrongs for individuals. I'm not sure where it came from, but I felt that very keenly early. You know, I actually thought I was going to go to law school and do women's rights law. That was sort of my first dream, and I was going to after college, go to the ACLU and work on civil rights law. But I just happened to get a call from someone for an internship I had applied for at Discovery Channel, which was sort of like my creative side. And I think as somebody who grew up very much in a culture of sort of achievement, following my creative side felt like a very risky thing to do. But I just thought on a flyer, you know, I can always be a lawyer. I'm going to explore my creative side, apply for this internship at Discovery which I ended up doing and never turned back. But the first part of my career was very much about telling, ironically enough, sort of male-skewing stories, like all of these science documentaries and, you know, the David Attenborough Planet Earth 
and these sort of shows about muscular men in the wilderness. Yeah, like crouching and looking at birds from a distance. Exactly. The genre that I kind of helped develop on Discovery that became very successful was called Tough Guy TV. Wow. Um, You know, we did all these shows, American Choppers, um, Dirty Jobs, Deadliest Catch. These were all shows that, funnily enough, at the time I said, told the story of the everyman. Mm. The person whose story was universally resonant, but these were all guys. They were dudes. It was called Tough Guy TV, Dude TV, whatever it was. And here I was, this kind of young woman who had kind of the zeitgeist of what these guys wanted to watch. It was a male-skewing audience. And I honestly wasn't particularly curious about this or reflective about this in any way. I mean, I genuinely love these stories. I love science. I love history. But it was only years later, after I left Discovery, started my own production company, producing things like Say Yes, The Dress and many, many other shows, and being one of few women helming one of these companies, uh, that it sort of dawned on me that, hey, why is it that these areas like science and wilderness and the natural world? Like, why are these spaces all seem to be male skewing? Yeah, because back then even, like, what was the breakdown in terms of viewers? Like, it's not just men watching TV, or is it that women are trained to be interested in male subjects? Exactly. And going back to your whole NCS and the science, the sciences, like, I think as young girls, at least when we were growing up, it was it was a more male space. Like we were told in that very subliminal way at NCS back then, because we didn't have the same level of math and science courses, that this was not a female space. Mm. This was a male space that we were joining and you only joined it if you were at the top of the class and you were gifted in science and math. And so I wasn't really curious about this, but looking back now, I can see that in some ways I started to think internally about well, why is it that these spaces are gendered male? And by the way, mostly white male for that matter. Yep. And then the other piece of it was the whole business side. So when I was at Discovery, we sold the male skewing audience at a premium and the female audience was discounted. The theory being that, you know, part of it was around scarcity. There are less men watching television, therefore you pay more for them. But there was also the argument of male men had more disposable income. They had more earning power. And at the time when I was at Discovery, when I was in my 20s, and I went back to business school, um, I actually wrote a business plan for something called SheTV. Mm. And the idea was a content service that would cater towards women who I believed were undervalued as an audience. And that it would be sort of programming specifically catered to that audience. And, um, you know, I had all these reasons why I thought this was a good idea. Well, I found that article the very week of the Blasey Ford hearings, the very week that I was told that my company, which I had sold, Half Yard Productions, I had sold my production company to a larger entity. And I was told that I was able to get out of my deal early Mm. So the week that I was told I could get out of my deal early and I had been contemplated very much feeling the tugs of wanting to use everything that I knew to this point to sort of make more of an impact in the world and scroll way back to my early days of wanting to be like a civil rights lawyer and my feminism and seeing that there weren't many women in the business doing what I was doing and being keenly aware of these sort of male skewing spaces like nonfiction, history, science, all these things that I loved. And it was kind of a dumb moment. And that day, 
I happened to be looking on my desk and I found the SheTV business plan. And I thought to myself, duh, Abby, it's been there all along. Like, this is what you need to do. You need to start this company that can make possible these stories that aren't being told. And later I came up with the idea of every woman because I always said I know what the every man wants to watch. But the every man, when you look up that word in the dictionary, the every man, which means the person whose story is universally resonant. It is a man. Like that word shouldn't be a gendered word, but it is. So what I thought to myself was, well, I just want to tell, I want to put the woman in the story. I want to tell a story from a female point of view and make those stories universally resonant. So they're not stories just for women. The insight was, I just want to put women in the spaces where we don't see women. You want to center women in the story and the narrative and advance their stories. So that for those of us that were growing up who were interested in science like me, who was not advanced math like you, I could see that I might have had a career in that. Right. You know, if I could have seen a woman in a show being a scientist, like where's the female David Attenborough? Right. If I could have seen a woman explorer, I could have imagined that that could have been a career or a path or that that's something that women do. So the idea being men and women, boys and girls can all relate to these stories. I'm just centering women in these stories, particularly in places and spaces where we don't see women. And that's kind of where LFG came from, because that's a story about women in sport, but it's larger. It's a story about women fighting for equality. And so one of the spaces I was keenly interested in was women in sports, because it's another place where we see no stories of women. I mean, I call it a content desert, which to me are places where there's just women nowhere in content and sports, one of them. So that was a place. That's why I was interested in that story. It's incredible. When I watch your movie at the premiere here in DC, sitting between my mom, yeah, who wasn't given opportunities like I had and certainly that my daughter has now and may have become a doctor Right. Um, She ended up being a social worker, and thank God, because she's an incredible therapist. Um, And sitting between my mom and sitting between my daughter, who is a soccer player and someone who I just learn from every day because she's an outside-the-box thinker and person, just watching the movie, watching not just Megan Rapinoe, who obviously grabs you immediately because she's so dynamic, but watching all of the characters and their development and these sort of everyday people who are elite athletes, their humility, their grit, their commitment to excellence, married with the everyday challenges of raising kids, not making a lot of money, having to take a second job, and seeing them rise to the occasion despite not being equally paid, and then marshalling that through your film to get equal pay, and then seeing recently the settlement that to U.S. Women's Soccer of equal pay. I mean, anyway, it was a moment for me to be sitting between two generations of women that, that are in my family, and then seeing you as my friend model vulnerability and bravery show the world what needs to happen, tell an untold story. And then, you know, it actually was successful, like on paper, to the extent that money means, you know, getting equal pay means valuing your work, that matters. Right. But what matters to me almost more, and I think maybe you feel the same way, is their story. Yeah. And their story and how they get there. Because you don't just get paid that much money by, you know, phoning it in. You hustle. Yeah. And and they always were hustling and were getting equal pay. That was the whole problem. And it's not easy. Right. It's a struggle and it's a long struggle. I see you 
since I am lucky enough to know you from when we were three years old or four or whatever it was, like going through elementary school, middle school, you know, puberty. We have to talk about puberty cat. Anyway, Abby, I was trying to figure out how to get the story of the puberty cat into this podcast. I was like, how can I drop puberty cat into the podcast? Puberty cat, let's just do it. So puberty cat was, you know, all of us were going through middle school together and, and, and all of us had different relationships with our parents and how we discussed, you know, change, whether it was bodily or relationships with alcohol, boys, whatever. And Abby's mom and dad were particularly open about talking about puberty and well, yes. Um, puberty cat is famous in our friends, in our friends group. Famous. Yes. Puberty cat was given to me by my father. My mother went back to school to become a nurse. She was a child of the sixties, very kind of, you know, earth child, talk about the human body. When she went back to nursing school, she had like breasts on the kitchen table with, you know, melanomas in them that she would feel. Like fake breasts we're talking about. fake breasts, fake breasts. So she was vocal about, you know, talking about your body, sex, these kinds of things. My father, on the other hand, was the Midwestern lawyer, came from a much more kind of emotionally tight family where emotions weren't often talked about. In fact, his parents wouldn't tell him they loved him. Like there was very much a kind of, we show our love, we show things, but we don't say them and a kind of tightness around emotion. So, you know, I think my father, who also, by the way, grew up with a brother and didn't have sisters. So if you are that person, how do you respond when your when your only daughter gets her period? You know, now being a parent, this is kind of sheds new light on this story. So what he decides to do when I get my period is to give me this tabby cat stuffed animal, which he said he gave to me because while I might now be a woman, I will always be his little girl. Of course, when he was telling me this, all I wanted to do was just disappear. Because the the last (laughs) thing you want to do when you're a teen girl and get your period is for your father of all people to see you differently. And and I I think for many teen girls, I was certainly in this bucket. There are some who usher in their period with great excitement. I was not one of them. I was pretty mortified. And I think I had a lot of misgivings about what puberty ushered in, like sex, sexuality, growing up, maturing. I, you know, I had very mixed feelings about these things, um, not the words to express them. So I am not excited to get my period at all. And here he is thrusting the tabby cat in my face and I'm mortified. So, of course, what do I do? I get on the phone and immediately call my besties and describe the story. And very quickly, this cat was dubbed puberty cat. And whenever anyone would come over to the house, uh, people would always I had it buried on my pile of stuffed animals. But my beloved friends, Lucy included, would foist it out of the pile and put it on the top Naturally. so it would be glaring at me across from my bedroom. There's nothing better in awkward, vulnerable spaces no. than a little humor. No. But, but- we had a great um, vibe as friends of kind of making light of sometimes the things that we could never talk about. Right, exactly. So, you know, hashtag puberty cat. I, of course, threw it out immediately upon, you know, whatever purge I had going to college. Puberty cat was the first thing to go. (laughs) So funny. So I've known you since from elementary school, middle school, high school. I mean, we went to different colleges, but then we actually ended up overseas together after college. Um, You and I both lived in the UK and my husband and I were living together in England and you were in... 
whales. Yep. I mean, I mean, I could go on and on and on about our long relationship. The story that you tell of women, like the arc of this story in LFG, for example, or even the arc of the stories in Say Yes to the Dress, um, kind of mirror to me the arc of, of your story and like self-awareness and growth and becoming who you are and, and, and that, that sort of marriage, if you will, of courage and vulnerability. Because yeah. I know that it's been hard yeah. to, you know, come from a family of lawyers, come from a school that we came from where, like, as you just Dr. said. Dr. Lawyer. Dr. Lawyer. Those Dr. Are the two, lawyer. Dr. Lawyer. And then to kind of bust into the creative space and then find your voice and then help other women find the voice. Like, tell me about how the vulnerability you've experienced has informed how you tell the story of other women. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, in my career looking back, I was very much drawn to authentic characters and storytelling in a very authentic way. Nonfiction, reality, call it what you will, was a genre that really was about turning the eye on people and spaces and worlds in an authentic way. Not the veneer of scripted or movies. Or overproduced right, was Hollywood kind of, style. Let's see people as they are. Right. And that appealed to me. You know, something like, say, Yes Address, I think it's successful because it's a rite of passage everybody goes through. And people are sort of laid bare by that. The point you made about, you know, us growing up in Washington, a town, as we grew up in it, that was very sort of achievement-oriented, and our school, which was very achievement-oriented, and what those achievements meant, which weren't always articulated, were often about following a similar path from those around us, which was sort of the doctor-lawyer yep. thing. I think that in my life, the thing that I have found very powerful is almost the power of intuition. And as somebody who's a highly rational person, actually, as I've gotten older and all of the key decisions in my life are all intuitive decisions. It's not something that I would have been able to recognize or articulate that I had that skill. But I think that, you know, for example, when I decided to apply to the internship at Discovery was because literally came from a moment when I was like on a bus in Guatemala and a fellowship that I got in college, which I kind of created for myself to study the modern Maya. And I was like on this bus in Guatemala with like chickens and grown men and chickens and more chickens and more chickens. And I was by myself in the middle of nowhere on an unpaved road at an American school bus on the top of the school bus riding across these mountains in Guatemala. And I had kind of this amazing moment where I just thought, how can I do this for my life? How can I make a career out of exploring and learning this way? It was kind of a naive insight, but it was a real intuitive thing. And I kind of said, well, I'm going to apply for an internship at Discovery and one at National Geographic. And I ended up getting the Discovery internship. And that took me on this total other path. You know, when I decided to leave Discovery to start my own company, production company, that too was a very instinctual, intuitive moment where, you know, as a woman, you talk about vulnerability my boss had always said that I could take a day off. I wanted to have flex work time. This was back, you know, in 2005. And my daughter was born. I was ready to come back to have my day working from home. And things were very stressful at the office. And he called me and said, I know I promised you this, but I need you here. I need you to come back from maternity leave early. And I, I cannot allow you to work one day from home. You manage all this team. You need to be here. And in that moment, I thought to myself, I'm gone. Yep. Like, I'm the poster child of this company of women, one of the so-called best companies for working women. I work my butt off. I've earned this. 
And if I can't have a day, flex day working from home, who, when will I ever get it? And it just, it was in that moment I decided I'm going to start my own company. And I called a colleague of mine the next day and I said, you know, we've talked about it. We're going. But it was like, where did that come from? I mean, I'm not a kind of crazy risk taker in a lot of ways. I don't see myself that way. But I think it was just an intuitive vision. If I had sat down and done my pluses and minuses and all the things that as a logical person I can do, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I listened to my gut. I listened to my intuition. And I knew it was the right thing to do. Having that courage and being able to listen to the intuition requires putting away the fear some fear and yeah. putting anxiety in a box and managing it because as i have been talking about with patients for years and years and years we all have anxiety it's part of yeah. the human condition it's just yeah. on a continuum sometimes I have a it's lot, pathological you know, and i'm and like when, everyone and, else and having if, anxiety too right and if you're a rule follower and yeah. you're like a type a whatever yeah. that means I'm person all those things. then being able to follow your intuition is contingent on being able to manage the fear that is part and parcel of taking risks. Yes. And so how do you manage that? Like, how do you manage it then? And how do you manage it now? Again, not to say that anxiety is a problem necessarily. We all have fears and worries and it's normal to have some level of anxiety yeah. uh, risk taking because some risks are not actually smart to take. Um, you trusted yourself, but how yeah. do you manage it then? And how do you manage that now? Because this was a big risk taking project to do LFG. It wasn't. right. Well, and the same thing with LFG. And when I decided to leave Discovery, my cushy job to go start my own business, which was looking back, a kind of crazy, naive thing to do. But it was an intuitive leap. And I was, you know, I kind of willed it into existence. And then years later with, you know, that company that I started, which was called Half Yard Productions with a colleague, Sean Gallagher, company was very successful. We ran it. We sold the business. Uh, it was still profitable. I could have stayed there forever, but I had yet another one of these moments, kind of what I described, the, the reading the She TV thing I'd written, the Blazy Ford hearings, feeling like I needed to do more in life than make more episodes of Say Yes Address, as much as I love that. That was another very intuitive, clarifying vision moment. And what I've learned is like anxiety can be the space of for me, it keeps me in the here and now. It keeps me in kind of the moment. It doesn't allow me to see vision, to have a vision or see a vision beyond the present moment. Anxiety can keep me in that space. When I have these kind of intuitive vision moments, like the one that I had with reading the sheet TV, it was kind of a clarifying moment that takes me out of the here and now and can supersede that anxiety, and I get really excited. I'm kind mm. of an optimistic person at the end you of the are. day. You are. And I see what's possible, and I think that that overrides the anxiety. But I think I've learned in order to make space for the vision, in order to make space for the excitement, that I have to find ways to you know, manage, manage my anxiety. And that, and that for me has been going way back to the negotiation at Discovery where I had this one day from home. Like since then, back in 2006, when we started Half Yard, I said, I'm going to have that day from home because as my own, you know, self-employed person, if I can't carve out the same thing for myself that I left for, what am I doing? Right. If you can't be kinder to yourself as if your I own boss. If I can't lead by example and show that as an employee. And lead other You have people. to be like a whole person. Right. And make space for yourself. So since then, that was 2006, we started the business without total exception, because here I am on a Friday. But I have taken every Friday out of the office from that moment forward. 
And that Friday has been my day of sanity. Mm-hmm. So I do no meetings. I do no calls. I do yoga. I go for walks. I think big. It's my space that I've created in the crazy humdrum of life to make the space, to have the vision, to get excited, to reinvigorate myself. Um, and I think it's made a huge difference. I mean, it's when my kids were little, I would go to, they had this little thing at their school t- called Shabbat Sing, which is a Jewish ritual. The Shabbat is the end of the week. And it's actually called sacred space. And I, I really believe in this as kind of an anxiety pr- prevention <laughs> mechanism, which is making sacred space in your daily life. Um, and that concept of Shabbat, and I'm not a religious person, but I am kind of a spiritual person. And I realized that for me was like my Shabbat. It was my sacred space that I created for myself. And it allowed me to be brave, to take risks, to have the visions within the kind of humdrum of life, to try and be a better parent, you know, when I can be, you know, it's not perfect. Like I'm totally stressed out a lot of the time, but I do find that cadence of having that day does give me that space and time. It's so important what you're saying, because as you well know, and as I know myself and talk about with patients, you know, anxiety is, again, part of how we're made. It can serve us. It can allow us to run from the proverbial tiger in the wild. It can, you know, make us study for the test. But it does a lot of worrying about the past and what we did wrong. And, and, And it does a lot of what if, oh, my God, thinking about the future. Yeah. And takes us away from that creative, self-soothing, sort of generous space that we need for ourselves to be able to be a mother, a partner, and then, you know, creative in your work. And I find the same thing, that if I am wound up, you know, I'm less productive and I'm just wound up. It's funny, though, when you come from a background that you and I have come from, where it's like success is measured by like scores and grades and all that stuff, um, although like neither of our parents, my, my parents were not, they, they were like, please get bees and like smoke some weed, like, and, and just like stop being so kind of hard on yourself. Right. Like this was not coming from my parents. It was coming from, from me. Yeah. And I think, I think similarly I to think you, there might've been some low level expectations, but most sure, sure, sure. internal internal drive yeah. towards perfectionism. And we probably both differently manifested that we did and 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 i think we do now to today and we talk about it and i call myself like a recovering perfectionist and i see that actually in my daughter and i you know it's it's an interesting dynamic but my point is that when you grow up in the high school environment that we did you start to equate your anxiety with success like as if the anxiety itself propelled you to do well as if the anxiety and the sleepless nights and the sweaty palms are the reason you did well on the test or scored that goal in lacrosse game or got the job you got after college when actually um, I think the same thing is true for you. For me, like I was successful and had a lot of struggles in the meantime, despite the anxiety. And actually, so the point is if you can tame the tiger, use the anxiety to, to channel your energy to survive and thrive, but then put it aside, know it, and then take the space without anxiety to be creative and productive and like calm, that to me is, you know, healthy, but it also is what I think has made you successful. I mean, I think that it's, it's a toggle. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I remember at some point I said to one of our friends, I can't remember who it was, was I stressed out in high school? 
it's funny how one doesn't see oneself or remember how one is. And I remember one of our friends saying, Abby, are you kidding me? Do you remember that your hair fell out? <laughs> like speaking of hashtag alopecia with this whole, right. yes. Do you remember that I had you did. a chunk of hair that you fell did. out of my head? Yeah. And that was likely stress related. Yes. Making matters worse, like when I went to the doctor, the woman told me that, you know, this is like an autoimmune thing. We don't know what causes it. You know, for some people, their hair grows back. And for some people, they wake up in the morning and all their hair is on their pillow. Which for an anxious person hearing that. Exactly. I was like, was this like- is not going to help at all. But I recently told my daughters this and they couldn't believe it. One that I'd never shared this with them because with the whole alopecia thing. Yes. You know, with Will Smith. Yes, and, and Jada I said, Smith. did I ever tell you that I had... It was called alopecia areata. Right. So it was like an aerial little, Which you is know. different, by the way, from what Jada Pinkett Smith has. Right. She has an autoimmune, like right. diffuse alopecia. So you leave it to the doctor to but, tell but, me what kind of alopecia but, but, I have. But. but it's a good point. The point being that doctors, when they don't necessarily understand that common right. things are common, like stress-induced patches of hair loss, which is common. Interesting. And she did al- not tell me and that. And alopecia that yeah. Jada Pinkett Smith has is uncommon. That if you're talking to someone whose anxiety is driving the very right. symptoms they're coming in for, and then you're giving them the worst case scenario, that does right. not well, what's good for your anxiety. Well, interesting because looking back then, there was no conversation at the time about, are you stressed, Abby? Oh, God, no. This, is anxi- this could be anxiety-driven. I had no language around or internal curiosity around, ooh, could I be anxious? Could I be stressed? I mean, I think it just was a state of being for me such that I didn't even notice when I wasn't, maybe. I mean, I was a very happy kid for you the most part. You were so happy. Played sports, and I, I, looking back, I probably did things that, con, you know, playing sports was, as we know, being active is a nice counterbalancer of stress. But I was a very driven person who was very tough on myself. Yeah. And I'm sure that's where that came from. And in college, you know, that element got even worse in a way where I had like some disordered eating and I exercised really hard and I just was kind of really when I look back at it trying to do it all and kind of optimize myself at a level that was not joy inducing you know yeah I mean I think for you know we all know that like exercise is good for you and it does manage anxiety in some ways but if you're not connected to the idea that you have anxiety in the first place right. and then you're using exercise to manage it right you can run the risk of overdoing it and yes. then not actually dealing with the root cause which is the anxiety itself which is which is again like one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast and talking to people like you and is because these are parts of the human condition that that we need to address head on like we address people's cholesterol and yeah. diabetes and thyroid conditions Let's take a quick break. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. Welcome back. Let's get on with the conversation. I'm interested now to hear about how, like, the self-awareness that you got in college and afterwards, yeah. which I think all of us get more savvy about who we are 
after we leave home, right? Like it's like the journey of self-awareness. I mean, some people don't ever get that self-awareness. How does that inform the telling of the stories of every woman? I think that for me, I have been drawn to the space of telling very kind of messy, you know, versions of gray stories. Yeah. That especially for women that we are often given sort of a cutout or a poster and you go back to the perfectionism we were talking about, that there's sort of one way to show up. Right. You know, in the world as a woman, in the workplace, as a, as a working mom, you know, as a mom who's working in the home, you know, these are all sort of, call them norms, call them stereotypes. So I'm very interested in what are all the variable ways and the most expansive ways I love that it. we can show up as women. And that's actually what I want to do and show through storytelling. So actually... You know, one of the things when I started the company was to write, you know, a mission statement Mm. and a purpose statement. And I'm a big sort of lover of these, you know, business books and things that get into distilling the essence of your vision and whatnot. But one of the things that I wrote is that, you know, I want to make possible through storytelling all the many ways and the most expansive ways of what it means to be a woman. So, I mean, that can be anything and everything so that we don't see as women any barriers to anything. Yeah. And so that is kind of, for me, what I want to do through storytelling. And in some cases, it might be a big thing like an LFG, where actually core to the story is characters who are fighting for change or equality. And I think that going back to my early days of thinking about being a kind of civil rights lawyer, right, that was very much about how can I use one system to make change. In that case, I was interested for women. How do I use that system to make change? I think what I've learned through entertainment is that it's so powerful and that you can make change through entertainment just as you can through the courts or politics. And so really what I'm trying to do now is use my skills as a storyteller to bring about change in the ways that I can through entertainment. I love it because you look at shows like The Real Housewives and you did The Real Housewives of DC. Oh yeah, that story is... Fascinating. Not just the story of The Real Housewives, but the That's behind the scenes. That's a different podcast. Woo! But you look at the way the audience audiences around the country and around the world have responded to The Real Housewives mm. franchise, right? Mm-hmm. And that is appealing to the sort of primitive and societally nurtured urge to be successful in that way. Physically beautiful, made up, rich, privileged... And that lane, I mean, you tell me because you're the you're the yeah. branding expert on this stuff. That lane is is about like it it acknowledges itself. It acknowledges that it is about superficiality. Right. And but I think also telling the story of people who look on the surface like they have everything you could ever want, but behind the scenes they're actually throwing wine at each other yeah. at parties. And like, I'm not sure I'm getting this word right, but Schadenfreude. <laughs> I never get that word right, but. It's kind of the experience and the entertainment and seeing somebody else who maybe thinks they're better than you. Yeah. You know, just fucking their shit up. And it's like so entertaining. You can't It's so entertaining because it's like these grown women who are basically reenacting like middle school lunchroom antics, but in like ball gowns with like private jets. And it's endlessly entertaining. Actually, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I, of course, watched the Real Housewives of D.C. when you produced it. Um, But what's so interesting is that you're doing storytelling, 
But as you said originally about that centers women, but is, is centering the authenticity of the human experience. Yes. That's, that's not glossy and glamorous. Right. And of course it's glamorous to win the world cup. But of course it's cool to be Megan Rapinoe because she's just in, she oozes cool off the screen. She does. Woo. But you're telling the story, like the most interesting stories to me in the movie are the, the women who have to work as high school coaches on the side to pay for daycare Right. When they're winning right. national Mc- tournaments. Yeah. Jess McDonald, who's... I mean, incredible. Got the MVP of the NWSL the same year that she was having to live with a family because she couldn't afford her own home. And was also, you know, taking her son to with her to practices that she was coaching on the side. Yes. And her you son, know. by the way, the cutest boy. And how proud I hope he is someday, even yeah. now, to see his mom... Like following her dream, being physically and mentally like you know in process, yeah. and and then and then fighting for equal pay. I mean, that's just that's such a that's the story I want to watch more than people throwing wine at each other at a dinner right. party. All that that's right. cool too. Both are both are entertaining. I mean, it's interesting because he this Jess's son. This was not in the movie, but often he would travel with the women in the team. Like yeah, they do these national team games and the World Cup and whatever. And I remember there was one game that they were they had played in Chicago and I had gone out to see the team and you know kind of behind the scenes not filming but just meeting with some players and he came out of the elevator and he has this jersey with her number and it just says mom oh and or like mama's boy or something and he came and he come comes out of the elevator with like all her teammates you know and they're all just loving on him and you're thinking here's a kid who is growing up yeah. around these badasses. Women. Right? Women who are the best at what they do in the world. And how cool is that? And, and that, Abby, you have told the story of the struggle of of their lives and then the ultimate success story. Yeah. I think that was important because, again, in terms of how stories are told often, yeah, the glossing over of experience does no one any good and what's what I think you know we can glorify athletes and the in the female athletes but that actually doesn't give any shade to this to the struggle and that's part of I think what's so powerful about their story that drew me in is in spite of how hard it is both to play and to get equal pay they did it anyway. Exactly. And, and I think that is inspiring, right? And that and you want to see how hard it is. And you want to see that they're, you know, without their makeup on, late at night, going through doc, you know, going through and doing the fight or at home with their loved ones or whatever. And that to me is what women want to see. Because let's acknowledge yeah. in the world we live in. Yeah, women do want to see that. We want to see that we're not the only ones feeling vulnerable, afraid. Right struggling because while it's fun to watch the real housewives in their ball gowns, like most people don't live like that. And most people are struggling, even if they're successful on the surface, right? They've, they've, they've grappled with their mental health, whether they called it mental health or not, they've grappled with whether it's, you know, childhood trauma or anxiety or mood issues or relationships with food or relationships with substances like alcohol. So many people have struggled like women have struggled in their lives with like uncertainty, what's going to come next, whether it's career wise, relationship wise, like what do you do when you're in an uncertain time when you're feeling like the bottom is falling out? Mm. I'm only saying that not that I, I mean, I know you well. Yeah. So no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not pointing to any specific yeah. moment. I'm just saying like when you I've feel, yeah, I, mean, I think I, I'm assuming that we, yeah. you know, we all have, and most people hopefully listening can relate. Like, 
when you feel like, oh my God, like this is stressful, this is hard, I don't know which way this is going to go, whether it's a relationship or it's professionally, like what are you, what's your sort of survivor kit? Like what's in it? Yeah. Well, definitely I'm a big lover of the outdoors. I find being walking and moving. Yeah. Sometimes where I do my best thinking. So often if things are hard, I find getting outside and going for a walk, like very Connecting with nature. Yes. Or running, but walking particularly, I don't know, there's something meditative about it, gets me kind of out of my head and gives me a little perspective. You know, I tend to sometimes think about in those hard times, other hard times I've had and have gotten through them. Mm. Um, and other people I know who have gone through hard times, and this is not the toughest moment I can do this, you know? Um, I also think, you know, connecting out to people and kind of being able to unload it. You and I are both external processors. We're, I, we're external processors. I'm an external processor, yes. and I externally process with you, thank yes. God. You yes, remember, like, about six months ago when I was I had an article due, and yes, I just I couldn't write it, and I had it wasn't even writer's block. It was writer's block plus. It was like, I cannot do this feeling. Yeah. And you just talked me off a ledge. And I think what you were doing is bringing out the tools that you have. I mean, first of all, you you said to me what you try to say to yourself when you're going through a hard time, whether it's that moment or other times, is like, be a little more forgiving of yourself. Give yourself a effing break. That's that's what you told me. And I was like, thanks, Abs. You did. I think that that shout out to my therapist, because I think one thing that I've learned that I did not do well is cut myself slack. And right. that's the kind of perfectionistic thing. A hundred percent. Like the self-flagellating. Or 99%. <laughs> right. The self-flagellating. Shit. I said, I should have done better. Why did I do that? Um, the voice inside that beats yourself up, I think as a mom, you know, early, early years of my mom years, you know, always so hard on myself. Like, why did I forget that? Why didn't I, you know... And what I've learned is I'm just doing the best I can. Forgiveness and grace. You know? And doesn't mean I still don't do that. But in those moments, I try and say, oh, well, that is my little mantra for myself. I love it. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. You know, and it's kind of a little bit of grace to say, you know, like we show up at the soccer game and we forgot the cleats. Oh, well, what's the let's worst go thing to Dick's Sporting Goods, you yeah. know? Or let's go and run and play soccer in sneakers. Right. And instead of like, oh, my God, I should have done it last night. You know, I was doing something else. I should have paid attention. Oh, my God, why isn't my kid taking responsibility? I haven't <laughs> I'm taught them the right parent. lesson. And kind of, you know, the cycling <laughs> yeah. internal monologue that happens. So the oh, well of it all just stops it. And it's, it's both in a well for myself and it's a reminder of myself that you're going there. You're doing that thing and stop it. It's connecting with nature. It's movement and external processing. Externally processing. And, and then also, my internal thing to myself, oh, well. Oh, well, which is, yeah. the, which is the kryptonite for perfectionism. Yeah. It's like, good what enough. you going to do? Good enough. Good oh, well. And, and not only is that effective in the moment to give yourself that grace for not being perfect or forgetting the cleats or whatever it is, it also does exactly what you're doing on Fridays or trying to, which is like give yourself a little space yeah. to then not be anxious all the time or not, or, or just give yourself, be, be dare to be human, right? Like just yeah. be human. Yeah. Because you would never be as hard on someone else. Maybe you would on your husband who forgot right. the cleats. As you, do you know what I mean? Like right. if your friend was like, I forgot the cleats, you wouldn't be like, oh right. my God. Right. Well, when you called me and described your thing, it's very easy to say, are you kidding me? Like cut yourself some slack. You're 
seeing patients. It's COVID. It's Sunday night. You haven't read the article. It's due tomorrow and no wonder you're stressed. But also you said to me, what's the worst that would happen if you didn't turn it in tomorrow? And I was like, nothing. Right. (laughs) Thank you. Right. And then once you gave me that forgiveness that I needed to give myself and I just wasn't able to muster it. Yeah. Then I like went to bed, I woke up and I wrote that damn thing and I turned it in at five o'clock and it was not a big deal. Yeah. Often the, it's funny that I said, what's the worst thing can happen? That's another thing I've learned to ask myself. Play it out. Because usually like at the root of fear, I think is some disaster preparedness. Like yeah. we, it's almost not thinking about the worst thing, but when you think about it, it makes it small, right? So it feels, fear can feel very foundational, and kind of identity foundational in the moment that you have it. Or failure. Failure can feel that way too. Yeah. Like, I mean, one of the things working in television is that you make all these shows and you get ratings. You know? Yes, you're and, rated. And, and you're like, you know, I, I describe it as being, you know, I think generally I'm a pretty even person and I'm a pretty optimistic person, although I have, you know, struggles and ups and downs and things. But working in television, especially as a producer, has took me to a place where you feel kind of, you know, I don't want to use this word lightly because I, but there's sort of like a bipolar emotional roller coaster you yeah. go on where one day you're like, I'm a freaking genius. <laughs> I am a creative <laughs> goddess. You know, it's like premiere of Say Us to Dress, it does a huge rating. It's like, I knew it was going to work. I'm a genius. And then you have something else that you think is amazing and it goes out in the audience like, yeah they're like we hate it and then i'd go to that place and be like the self-talk i am a piece of shit like what was i thinking you know and then it goes to the people around me we didn't do we didn't work hard enough we didn't do good enough what did we not do what did we not think about not this not that right so it's like the deflected perfectionism on all the people you work with and what i learned is that which is a painful lesson And actually, my business partner, Sean, this was something he was very good at that I learned from him, is he said, Abby, it was a good show, and we worked the hardest we could to make it a good show. It was a good show. Like, that is a separate thing from... What other people think about it. What do people think about the show? And the ratings. Right? Yes. Like, all you can control... Yes. ...is you do your best work, you come up with an idea that you think is great, and you pour yourself, and you do... You know, the people around you, your team, in the case of entertainment, it's often, you know, it's a team of people working. You do your best work. You don't know if people are going to like it or not. But them not liking it is a separate thing entirely from whether you made a good show. That's right. So I've learned that the hard way. I still have, it's still hard for me because as sort of a pleaser and somebody who likes, you know, putting points up and, you know, I'm competitive, like a former athlete. Like I like W's more than I like L's or ties. You know what I mean? And that's I like okay. To, and I that's like okay. to, I, I'm, you know, so, you know, you get a dopamine hit when you get a ratings high. It feels really good. I made this thing good show. People loved it. You know, that's a sort of entertainment dopamine hit. But what I've learned is, and even with LFG, this is true. You know, I'm really proud of this movie. The directors, uh, Sean and Andrea, who made it, I just think beautifully made and told story. I'm really proud of it. The movie was not nominated for an Oscar. Like other films that Sean and Andrea have been nominated for Oscars. Going in, like we thought, ooh, maybe it'll be nominated for an Oscar. It's gotten nominated for an Emmy. But it got kind of shunted by some of the, you know, the Oscars. But I have found as I've gotten older, and this is where I have grown, is that kind of rolled off my back. Because I looked at the movie and I said, honestly... 
I don't think it could have been any better. And I knew how hard it was to make it. And I'm so proud of it. So whether or not somebody else wants to put it up for an Oscar or not, that's, it is what it is. 49 years worth of self-flagellation to get to that point. And, you know, there might be something else that honestly you're like, it was pretty good. And then gets an award, you know, but I'd rather have something that I'm proud of that is a good show, a good story. And that at the end of the day is, is what I'm trying to do is tell, tell good stories that, that ultimately put women in a place in the story that can show the full experience of what it means to be a a female and whether people like them or not, or they get awards or they get ratings or whatever. Like I'm going to keep doing that. So awesome. We'll be taking a quick break, but stay tuned. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. And we're back. I'm going to wrap with one last question. This was such a great conversation. Um, if you were to give someone, say, your younger self or someone who was struggling with like mental health or their mm. mental health being defined, you know, as, as, as some kind of struggle, whether mm-hmm. they're anxious or they're depressed or they're having a relationship struggle or a crisis in their career, what piece of advice would you give that person who is struggling? I think number one, I would say first, the struggle won't last forever. Yep. It's a moment in time. Mm. You can get through it. I would also ask myself for that person, what is it that brings you joy? And do more of those things. So like for me, as I said, walking, hiking, like it really just makes me happier. Being with friends makes me happier. So Find out what the things are that brings you to that happy place, even if you're in a place of struggle that just moves the needle slightly, and find a way to architect your time to make sure you're doing more of those things. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be fancy, fanatical, it have to be fancy. formal. No, joy, you know, especially in the world we live in after two years of a pandemic, like it's hard to find joy for a lot of people. And as I say to patients who are struggling with whatever they're struggling with, it doesn't have to be expensive it doesn't have to be like a trip an all-inclusive trip to Barbados it just has to be being in nature snuggling with your pet going out with a friend reading a book reading a book reading poetry exactly just taking yoga finding joy and as you just said acknowledging that no feeling is permanent and then I'm going to just remember your toolkit for a second it's giving yourself some grace and forgiveness it's fighting perfectionism by saying oh well yeah being in nature moving and it sounds like when you're feeling mentally good then you feel better more creative and more successful yeah and and i'd add to that like finding your own shabbat Mm. like what's a sacred space that you can create it doesn't need to be a day i'm a big believer in um this sounds weird but like architecting time Mm -hmm. you know i firmly believe that like time is like a balloon in a room it'll always take up all the space like work is that balloon or kids can be that balloon, whatever it is. So you have to put stuff in the room. You have to like put stuff in. So true. And so for me, the Shabbat is like, how do you put in the sacred time, the sacred space? Like, how do you put that in? And I think that has to be intentional because if you don't put it in and what I've, for me at any rate, because I'm kind of a schedule oriented ritualistic person, I like repetitive anticipate it. So for me, I schedule it in every Friday. 
that's my time. Yeah. You know, I don't know how I'm going to use it. Well, and then just, it sounds like knowing you have that time. Knowing I have it like makes a, me feel less insane. Yes. Yeah. So good. And it makes me feel like I am even kind of like when I'm feeling in the worst moments, I know that I will have time to reflect, to have a break, to what have you. But I think that's my concept of Shabbat. But I think like, what's everyone's, how do you put in some sacred space into the daily grind? Because that's where inspiration comes. That's where love comes. That's where vulnerability comes. That's where sadness comes. That's where, like all, I think the real meaningful things come from that space. I think you're right. It's feeling the feelings. Yeah. We're very good in the current culture we live in. And just because we're wired this way to kind of protect ourselves of sort of numbing feelings, avoiding feelings. And it's really easy to numb and avoid when we have widely available substances including our own screens and phones and ability to work 24 yeah. seven. And it could be an occupational hazard if you like your work or, or if right. you don't like it's your work. It's kind of reflection avoidance. It's yeah. I mean, avoidance is very easy to do in this world. Yeah. So, so not avoiding feelings that may or may not be uncomfortable and then cultivating time to let joy come in and creativity come in. Yeah. I mean, I think as humans, there's a reason that organized religion mm-hmm. has come up with prayer, I think. Yeah. I think that's a human desire for the same thing. A human need to take us out of the here and now moment for that same cognitive behavior that happens. Like, I didn't grow up with prayer, so I didn't have that. But I think it's the same thing that that does. And there's a reason that over time, humans have done that. And that's because I think as humans, we need space to release us from kind of the daily stimuli. I think that's so true. I think it's a great point. Abs, you're an inspiration. I love your story. I love you because I just love you. And you love Puberty Cat. I love Puberty Cat. That is an awesome story that needs to be told <laughs> again and again. And I love that you are telling the stories of these women who have dared to be vulnerable and courageous and therefore successful in a bigger way. It makes it makes a difference. Thanks, Lou. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our delightful music is by my dear brother, the talented Walter Martin. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. There's a big blind bear who roams this road late at night, they say. You'll see her in the shadows as she walks her lonely way Through the backyard beehives and woodpiles She goes looking for her long-lost children Or at least that's what they say So I sit here at my window where I dream someday she'll pass I see the rhododendrons I planted And I think how time moves so fast Like the moonlight and the electric light projecting paisley patterns on the grass 
I look down at the scar on my hand. And I remember the first time.